Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Jason Weiner, a Colorado attorney and social enterprise developer, and I'll be joining you on the fourth Thursday of every month to learn about economic democracy and cooperative business. The Co-op Power Hour is a production of Colorado Co-op Study Circle, which you can learn more about at our website, coloradocoops.info. Today we're going to change things up a little and have a casual conversation among three generations of Colorado's cooperative lawyers. We'll be talking about Colorado's cooperative history and the history of cooperative law in Colorado. We'll be joined by James B. Dean and Linda D. Phillips. Together, Jim, Linda, and your host represent approximately 80 years of cooperative law practice and have been a part of Colorado's cooperative movement since the 1960s. We can't begin to imagine where the, co- the Colorado cooperative economy is headed unless we understand where it's been. It's often said that cooperative movements surge ahead from the rubble of economic calamity. The Rochdale Pioneer Society emerged from the Panic of 1837 that roiled the newly industrialized Great Britain. The Rochdale Society, 28 or so shoemakers, weavers, and other craftspeople, were entrepreneurs in their own right, cutting out the middleman to acquire the means of production for themselves. Out of the rubble, the Rochdale policies and practices were developed, and they include and they bear uh, understanding. They include open membership, one member, one vote, cash trading, membership education, goods sold at regular retail prices, limitation on the number of shares owned, net margins distributed according to patronage, dividend on equity capital being limited, equity provided by patrons, no unusual risk assumption, political and religious neutrality, and equality of the sexes in membership, bearing in mind these were promulgated in the 1830s and 1840s. The first known cooperative launched in the U.S. colonies during an incipient push for national independence in 1751 by Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia, where firefighting companies joined to form an insurance mutual. Fast forward to post-World War II and the U.S. economy, which had invented the corporate food production system. The post-World War II era also inspired a wave of food and agriculture producer cooperatives in the 1960s. These, quote, new age cooperatives were led by highly educated and experienced business people. Cooperatives finally had the resources and market access to achieve scale, or at least until a generation of consolidation and corporate financialization would squeeze their market share yet again. Arguably, the Great Recession of 2008 has given rise to the most promising resurgence of cooperativism in more than 80 years. With that, I'm extremely excited to introduce our guests. We have in the studio James B. Dean, B. Dean, who goes by Jim. Jim went to the Southwest College at the University of Colorado and Kansas State University and graduated cum laude in 1962. He went on to receive his JD from Harvard Law School in 1965. Jim worked with Colorado cooperatives for more than 45 years and retired from the practice of law in 2010. Also in our studio is Linda D. Phillips, who was born to a military family in Nuremberg, Germany. Linda moved around quite a bit growing up, attending five grade schools and four high schools. Before joining uh, the Colorado Cooperative Law Community, Linda was in advertising and marketing, banking, commercial property management, and then went on to law school. As a paralegal, Linda started working with cooperatives in the mid-1990s alongside and under Jim's mentorship. 
Linda went to law school at DU Sturm School of Law here in Colorado and graduated in 2004. Linda was immediately made a partner with Jim at Dean Dunn & Phillips until Jim retired. Linda now maintains a solo practice under Phillips Law Offices where she works with small and medium-sized businesses with an emphasis on cooperatives. Welcome, Jim. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for being with us. I want to start out by better understanding how each of you came to the Colorado Cooperative scene when you did. Tell us a little bit, Jim, please, if you will, about your upbringing, your education. What introduced you to the cooperative principles or the cooperative business model? Well, the quick answer is my father. <laughs> um, I grew up in central Kansas, and my father was the general manager and executive vice president of uh, a large grain marketing federated cooperative, which marketed grain for uh, cooperatives in various communities in West, mostly western Kansas. And at one point, after a consolidation, uh, it was the largest grain marketing cooperative in the world and from a little town in central Kansas. <laughs> um, I came uh, to Colorado right out of law school and uh, started my career in, in high finance, <laughs> um, but proceeded with some other kinds of things. Uh, I did a lot of work when Vail was first started and worked with it. Um, but along in 1973, I was contacted by the Colorado Sugar Beet Growers and uh, asked to become their general counsel and was for many, many years. And then through the head of the Colorado Cooperative Council, a man named Don Knowlton, uh, Don went around the state and told cooperatives they had to hire me to be a, uh, the lawyer for them. And so Don pretty much built my practice <laughs> in the cooperative world. And when I retired, um, a huge share of my practice was cooperative businesses, and not only in Colorado, but in other parts of the country as well. Do you have any fun stories growing up in a cooperative uh, household of, of any fun stories? In what ways did the cooperative uh, that your dad was a part of influence your upbringing and your family? Well, I don't know that there are any funny stories, really, that I can recollect. Um, there was one kind of tragic story. My dad had a very good friend whose name was Herb Clutter, and he was one of the people that was uh, shot to death or killed uh, in the Clutter massacres, they called them, where his whole family was killed by two other guys. And my dad went out to be with the family and, and help them. And I've never quite gotten over that because the cooperative community always stands together, and Herb was part of the local co-op where he was killed. Wow, that's really powerful. Linda, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what brought you to Colorado and what attracted you to and, and brought you into the cooperative fold. Well, good morning, Jason. Good morning, Jim. Um, I'm, uh, as Jason said earlier, uh, grew up in the military and lived all over the country. Uh, we were first moved to Colorado when I was 12, uh, lived in Colorado Springs, uh, uh, fell in love with the countryside, the mountains, the plains, the whole state, um, uh, got into fishing with my dad. And uh, that brought me back to Colorado in the early 70s and where I worked at Ball Aerospace here in Boulder uh, for about five years. It was a wonderful experience. I loved working here. 
uh, moved out of the state again and came back for good in 1984 and worked in various um, industries, including uh, my last uh, job as uh, outside the legal industry, which was for a credit union. And that's where I met Jim originally. Uh, he had come to the credit union, which I did not know at that time uh, was a form of cooperative. And Jim was trying to break into the credit union businesses, and um, I was the marketing director for the credit union, so he came and took me to lunch and tried to become the attorney for the credit union, which didn't work out, but I made a great contact with Jim. Uh, went to paralegal school after that and became his paralegal for several years, starting mm -hmm. in 1991, I think it was, through 94, 95. I can't remember exactly. Um, and Jim taught me not just um, about cooperatives, but also how to be an attorney. He taught me how to think. He taught me how to analyze. He taught me how to write like an attorney. Uh, and uh, one funny story I have was he was had me draft documents a lot, and he loved using a red pencil <laughs> or a red pen and to edit my, my work. And I remember the first time I got a document back with absolutely no red ink on it, and I framed it. I mean, it, it was just a wonderful experience. Well, we'll have to post a picture of that. That's <laughs> more impressive than uh, a law school diploma yes, in many circles. it was. <laughs> what was the state of the cooperative sector when each of you started practicing what was it like to get involved with cooperatives at the time? What was happening maybe more uh, generally in the Colorado economy at that time? Well, from my particular experience, um, there was um, about probably about five years after I started doing work with the sugar beet growers, we had a big recession in Colorado and you know it affected everybody. and. I think the cooperatives probably survived that as well as any of the business organizations that were around. Uh, even the big companies, uh, not unlike just a few years ago, uh, all took a pretty big hit. Uh, but the cooperatives in Colorado were primarily credit unions and agricultural cooperatives. And I certainly, the, the agricultural cooperatives really withstood the recession better than than I think as I said most businesses did and I think that illustrates that cooperatives have a, a very powerful base when they're operated properly and had you seen cooperatives the same clients even uh, go through at several ebbs and flows different business cycles had you seen that kind of through an entire cycle and could you describe what that was like did you see repeated p patterns of resilience Yes, um, you know, like any business, cooperatives, you know, operate in the marketplace. As markets go up and down, they have to deal with that. And the boards of directors of the agricultural cooperatives are farmers, and a lot of them don't have very much business background other than their farming business. Usually, the directors of a co-op have a great deal of farm business background, but often not as much business organization background and cooperatives are very much businesses which has been a challenge in in the history of agricultural cooperatives because uh, one of the as you mentioned earlier in the Rochdale principles which are still followed by 
cooperatives. Uh, the idea that the margins, which finally today are more often called profits, uh, but that was a verboten word back in uh, the time when I started practicing law. It was always net margins or net savings. Uh, but with the idea that those net margins will go back to the members, uh, a lot of managers believed that they really couldn't keep any of those margins. They all had to return in one way or another. A lot of times with credits on the co-op's books as equity. But uh, it, was, it was sometimes difficult for managers to come to grips with economic ups and downs because of that one principle. And it really shouldn't in any way uh, treat things differently. I think experience we have today with limited liability companies, S-corporations, which the earnings do go back to the members and are taxed at that level, uh, have probably opened the door in, in many good ways for cooperatives to look at, at using their, their money uh, in more progressive ways. And that allows them flexibility to meet ups and downs better than they did when I first started practicing with them. Linda, hearing that, has much changed? Um, I would say yes. Um, I think, um, uh, as Jim pointed out, there's a, um, a lot of co-op directors in particular that are not, uh, ha were not as business savvy as many of them are today. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the startup co-ops and the newer co-ops, uh, they know their industries, but they don't know business. So there's still a lot of, of training that is going to be required for uh, directors and uh, managers of co-ops on uh, running, actually running a business, not just the legal structure, but the business itself. And I, I saw a real good example of that when medical marijuana first came on the scene in Colorado. I was contacted by a lady who became a fairly significant figure in the marijuana industry um, to try to put together <coughs> a cooperative of growers of marijuana. And we had two or three meetings with them. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a sense in the part of these growers that they, uh, about what cooperatives involved but you get them in a room and try to get them to really understand they have to cooperate uh, with each other. Uh, they couldn't do that to save their soul, and the whole project really never got off the ground. <laughs> I, I want to go back to um, something that each of you touched on in uh, your, your introductions, and that is both of you in some ways started out your careers in uh, high finance or in corporate America. Talk a little bit about that juxtaposition, either making the transition from high finance and corporate uh, work to cooperatives or what you found eerily similar or troublingly absent. Um, either I think is really interesting, but can you talk a little bit about that juxtaposition? Linda, I'll start with you. Th that's an interesting question. I think, um, it goes back to the co-op as a as a different of enough of a business model that uh, many people don't understand um, the reasons for it or the concepts behind it, such as uh, one member one vote, uh, which is huge. I, I remember I had a 
physician come and talk to me about selling his uh, business to his employees and forming a co-op, and it was all great. He thought it was wonderful until we got to the one member, <coughs> one member, one vote issue, and he wanted to maintain control of the business. And so it's it's a different it's a different situation. Part of it is education. Uh, I think as as more people become aware of the of the particulars of this business model. Um, I think you need the business background. It, it certainly helped me uh, in talking to co-ops, uh, both on the financial side as well as the legal side, but helping them structure their businesses, uh, having that business background helped a lot. There was a time in my career where I did industrial revenue bonds to finance various things. and. And cooperatives became interested in that type of financing, and I would I would go to different co-ops, but not only in Colorado but elsewhere, and you know, we would start to talk about uh, how you look at the strength of a business. And with most companies, you look at the equity versus debt. Um, you look at the earnings that are coming in. Uh, with cooperatives, it's, it's a really different sort of thing. You look at the financial statements, and uh, cooperatives usually, as I mentioned before, uh, will retain some of the margins that are allocated to members, but the, they stay in the co-op. And cooperatives uh, redeemed those allocated but retained margins. And uh, if you look at a cooperative's financial statements, what you really like to see is how long are these retained equities out there. And if they're out there, if the cooperative is able to redeem them between from seven to ten years, that's a really healthy cooperative. And that's a concept totally foreign to ordinary business uh, organizations outside the cooperative field. Uh, and. Part of my job was to try to get the financial people that would buy these bonds to understand that that's the way you needed to look at a cooperative strength, was how quickly are they redeeming these retained equities. So to put it in different terms for listeners that may not be as um, familiar with cooperative finance, is it fair to say that these retained savings or earnings show up as essentially the cooperative holding on to savings on behalf of its members as a commitment of the members in the cooperative to the cooperative and the cooperative as in a way a wealth building mechanism for its members and so in a way this is a conjoined commitment between the members and the cooperative to build up the strength of this collective business structure. In the best of all possible worlds, that's a very accurate statement. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, switching gears again, kind of to the history, what was your impression of Colorado's cooperative sector during the early parts of your careers in relation to other parts of the country? Maybe a, to draw a comparison, you know, we see today different dynamics facing cooperatives here in Colorado versus uh, the dynamics facing cooperatives in, say, New York, Massachusetts, or California. Can you talk a little bit about what those differences or similarities were um, when you started or at different points in your career? And Jim, I'll start with you. 
Not sure that I can do a good comparison, Jason. I do know that we had in Colorado, in the agricultural sphere, uh, the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union that was strongly in favor of starting and supporting cooperatives all over the state, agricultural cooperatives all over the state. And if, if you go around and, and see names sometimes on the grain elevators in, in the rural parts of Colorado, you'll see Farmers Union in the name of these cooperatives. And they, the Farmers Union probably built the agricultural cooperative uh, enterprise in, in the state of Colorado. I am not aware of that kind of push uh, being made in any other state, though I think it probably has been. And for me, for me, um, I didn't uh, get involved in co-ops until the early 90s, but I, I, I remember at that time that um, Colorado statutes were a little bit limited in the types of co-ops that could be formed, and Jim was instrumental in uh, uh, revising or getting revised uh, Article 56, the standard co-op statute here in Colorado, I think it was 96, 95, 96, that he did that, that allowed co-ops to get into all different kinds of industries, not just agricultural. And so because of that, I think it allowed Colorado statutes to be exported to other parts of the, of the country. So that if you have a state um, such as Arizona, for example, that doesn't have um, uh, high-quality co-op statutes, they can form businesses here in Colorado and then go do business in Arizona. And I think that that changed um, quite a bit in Colorado and made Colorado a, a premier state for cooperative organizations. So it sounds like a good deal of Colorado's cooperative history took place in the rural parts of the state and maybe more recently um, in the Denver metro and, and more urban corridors. Uh, whereas we see many more worker cooperatives, for instance, in Massachusetts, New York, California, uh, pockets in other parts of the country, why do you, why do you think we, don't, we have not had more worker cooperatives form here in Colorado until recently? Well, I think that's because uh, <clears throat> There, there used to be in Colorado an organization called the Colorado Cooperative um, Council. Council, thank you. <laughs> and um, they, uh, it, it was formed by agricultural cooperatives, and it, it was a huge support for the agricultural cooperatives and, and formation of new ones. Uh, but it refused to acknowledge there were any other kinds of cooperatives, including credit unions, which have been around a long time. And I think without that kind of support, uh, you, you find it difficult for new kinds of cooperatives to emerge, at least until recently. Um, there have been several grocery cooperatives that started uh, up in Denver uh, and Boulder. And they just struggled, and, and they had no outside support to help them. Uh, so I think that it's not just the cooperative community itself, uh, though that community needs to favor uh, and support different kinds of cooperatives. We have a very large cooperative in uh, Colorado. It's headquartered in Colorado 
that's in the uh, securities industry, not stocks and bonds, but um, the alarms, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, it wanted to become part of the Colorado Cooperative Council, and they wouldn't let them in. And at the same, at the same time, when they could have, that this company could have brought a lot of dues to the organization and to, to the council, and the council was struggling for money. They still wouldn't open their doors to anybody but agricultural cooperatives. And I don't think in Colorado we've had until I think it's beginning to change now, but we really haven't had a support structure for cooperatives. And I think I think it's been a difficulty outside of agriculture and credit unions. And I think partly explains why workers' co-ops have for a long time not, not been able to get going in Colorado, again, until recently. With some of your good work, Jason. <laughs> Uh, well, and Linda, <laughs> Linda, what what do you think has changed, or has it changed? I, I think I think part well, to to my issue. Yes, there has not been a a, a, a sufficient support structure for uh, non agricultural co ops in the state. But I think part of the reason why East Coast, West Coast, and maybe the Midwest area um, have a more robust uh, worker co op movement is they have. There, there are communities there that uh, have more unions than we have here in Colorado. They are used to more collective um, organizational systems there than we have here in Colorado. Uh, um, and they have economic development uh, organizations that are also uh, specifically geared towards job growth and creating jobs through uh, worker ownership. And uh, especially I know in New York City, um, their Economic Development Council gives them a million dollars every year for creating new worker co-op jobs. We don't have that here in Colorado. We got lucky last year. I think we got $100,000 out of the state legislature. Um, that does not go very far towards uh, economic development. So I think that's one of the reasons why we don't have as much here. Plus, there's a public uh, lack of, of understanding and uh, knowledge about co-ops in general, worker co-ops in particular. And I think Linda makes a very good point uh, when she comments on more familiarity with unions uh, in different parts of the country. Um, co-ops and unions started to make real headway in the United States at the same time, and in many ways addressing the same sorts of issues. Uh, ag co-ops to help farmers do better in ability to purchase things and to market their products. Uh, the unions to try to better the lives of its members and workers. And so in places where unions have a lot of activity, uh, you, you do have, as you kind of indicated, uh, a mindset that can be more receptive to the co-op idea. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm your host, Jason Weiner. We'll be with you on the fourth Thursday of every month. Today we're talking about Colorado's cooperative history and the history of Colorado cooperative law. Coming up, we'll continue our interviews with Jim Dean and Linda Phillips.
Today we're talking about Colorado's history of cooperative culture and the history of co-op law. And we have two preeminent uh, attorneys in the space who have been working with cooperatives together for more than 50 years. We've been talking about Colorado's history of cooperative development and the history of cooperation. I'd like now to turn to the history of the law in Colorado, uh, kind of the undercurrent that doesn't often get described outside of legal circles. And yet I think we're having a moment when uh, the tide of social enterprise, the tide of economic inequality and injustice is turning. People are looking to business solutions to solve deeply entrenched social and environmental issues and are looking to business structures to enable change. And I'm seeing personally a renaissance in the cooperative model and to better understand how that's rooted in uh, the, f the, the legal framework in which business operates, we need to really understand uh, not just the current legal structure, but also the history of how we got here. Um, the law is a construct. It's created by people, for people, to solve um, issues faced by people. And as a true people's business model, I think it's really incumbent on us to understand that history. So I'd like to start out, uh, Jim, asking, what was the state of Colorado's cooperative law when you first started practicing in the mid-60s? What was on the books? What was the state of the law here in Colorado? We had essentially two uh, Colorado co-op statutes. Uh, one uh, was patterned after what is in co-op circles is known as the Bingham Act, which has been adopted in one form or another in many, many states in, in the United States. In Colorado, it's pretty much limited, as Linda said in the prior segment, uh, to agricultural cooperatives. Um, the other uh, co-op statute, a uh, number of us have often wondered what it was really adopted for, uh, <laughs> because it didn't seem to do much, it didn't offer a whole lot of guidance, and it's, uh, it's not been used very much if you look back at records at the T Secretary of State's office. Um, but as Linda also mentioned previously, uh, uh, the Article 56 of, of our corporate statutes um, did not really do, it didn't allow for anything other than, than agricultural cooperatives, and we were able to get that expanded to open the door to some other cooperative uh, enterprises. Um, and it really was a, one of the better co-op statutes in the country. And then more recently, uh, the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, which is a mouthful, uh, put out a model co-op statute uh, that uh, is called the uh, Uniform Limited Cooperative Association Act. And it uh, has some different structuring uh, within it for cooperatives and opens the door to any type of enterprise that wants to utilize the cooperative form. And we're going to come back to that. Um, but Linda, I want to give you a chance to do justice to Ulka's development and also give us the thumbnail uh, non-technical overview of where we stand today. What's on the books and uh, how do you approach? Well, I want to I uh, throw in one small story of one of my co-op clients that formed. It's a small, itty-bitty telecom co-op uh, out on the Eastern Plains, and they were formed in 1906 as a nonprofit. 
because in those days they didn't have any other form that they could be to provide the services that they wanted to provide. So it wasn't until many, many, many years later that they uh, converted to the cooperative format, but they always thought of themselves as cooperative and now uh, operate on a cooperative basis with all of their consumer members. Um, and what was the previous question? Sorry, you have to repeat. What's the current state of Colorado Co-op law? Uh, uh, well, we have uh, three statutes, um, two of which are used pretty extensively. Uh, one is probably what I would call the standard uh, uh, cooperative corporation statute. Um, it has uh, standard corporate law, such as a board of directors. You can have stock or you can have membership. Uh, units, um, uh, but it has the co-op principles. You have the one member, one vote, uh, uh, limited return on investments, that type of thing. And then, um, and I'm sure we'll have a longer discussion about um, Article 58, which is the Limited Cooperative Association Act statute, which was uh, written by my friend and partner, uh, Jim Dean, as well as uh, Dr. Tom Gooey out of South Dakota. And um, they spent many, many years putting that co-op statute together, and then we uh, took a year with a group of other attorneys to get it passed through the Colorado legislature. And we are going to come back to ULCA. I want to understand, um, if I understand correctly, and, and Linda referred to three co-op statutes, and for those uh, sitting in front of a computer, those are Article 55, Article 56, and Article 58 of Title Seven of the Colorado Revised Statutes. I want to understand, Jim, what was happening uh, in the mid-90s to, to warrant a revision to Article 56, which is the statute Linda describes as the standard cooperative corporation law. What was, ha what was happening and, and why did you see fit to reform it? And, and what was your purpose in reforming it? Um, and then I want to ask Linda, uh, following that, what do you think that achieved uh, uh, in relation to the co-op laws around the country? Better to start with the history first. There has always been in Colorado, a, I think, a group of people who saw the opportunities for cooperatives in a whole variety of, of industries. Um, and that group was frustrated that you couldn't use co-op in some of these industries because we didn't have a statute that allowed it. Um, and we were not real comfortable in uh, doing what the telecom co-op uh, did, uh, which was just organized as a nonprofit, because that statute doesn't have within it a number of the co-op limitations and principles that we really like to have for a co-op. Uh, and so uh, there were some of us that were uh, in touch with people that would like to use the co-op form, and we just were as I said, frustrated. We couldn't find a way to do it. So we began to look to see if we could, if there would be enough support out there to amend Article 56 to broaden its, its reach. And there was, and after education with legislators and others interested in cooperatives, um, we were able to get the statute modified. Was that Jerry Mueller that you worked with on that, or who was that that you worked with? Well, there were a number of people. Uh, Jerry Mueller, uh, for a time, was a public relations person with Farmland Industries, which was a huge co-op until it 
unfortunately fell on hard times. Uh, and there were some others in the co-op council, even though the council wouldn't, wouldn't accept membership, that really believed co-ops ought to be available to others. And uh, the credit unions, and we don't want to forget them, they're a whole s different set of statutes for, for them, yes. uh, but they're certainly a powerful cooperative group. They, they saw possibilities. Farmers unions saw possibilities. And so it was that, that kind of group that came together. And Linda, so Article 56 in the mid-90s is restructured to become a more general, generally applicable statute. How did that stack up Colorado's co-op laws at the time in relation to the co-op laws in other states? Well, I, I'm, I've, as you know, I've been involved with the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, study on co-op statutes from around the country. And <clears throat> in my own research, um, I found that... Um, at the time that our statute was expanded to allow formation of co-ops outside of, of agriculture, in other words, you could go into any industry now and form a co-op if you wanted to, and it, it allowed uh, that expansion to be publicized and, and then exported to other states, and it it's, uh, was revolutionary at the time, and I think there's still a lot of states that don't have very good co-op statutes. So uh, uh, we're hoping to, to, at some point in the future, hopefully in the next few years, take both OCA and the standard co-op statute and form uh, a uniform um, uh, nationwide co-op statute that can be uh, incorporated in other states. Can you give an example for our listeners how a co-op statute in, say, another place might be restrictive and where Colorado might offer some glimmer of hope in, its, in the flexibility it offers? Uh, for example, in another state might only have uh, agricultural marketing association uh, statutes so that um, um, uh, you could form a co-op in that state as long as you were uh, agricultural producers and as long as the, it was a marketing co-op. Uh, if you wanted to form a purchasing co-op, for example, of, uh, of roof builders, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, form that in that state because they wouldn't have that statute available. Uh, here in Colorado, you could form uh, a purchasing co-op of roof builders or golf ball divers and um, um, authorize that that company to be um, to do business in any other state, but under Colorado law, uh, you could use the Colorado Cooperative Statute and and form it here. There's a a real good example of of that um, in Arizona. There was a couple who were kind of business advisors, uh, and they are really interested in co-ops and they proceeded to start uh, worker-owned co-ops in Arizona uh, among the mentally challenged uh, people from all spec uh, the whole spectrum of, of people with mental limitations uh, one of their members was uh, an advisor to the um, Arizona governor uh, was on a federal panel uh, and just a remarkable fellow, but he had cerebral palsy, and he was in a wheelchair, he could not speak, um, used a lap board to communicate, um, but a powerful fellow. And, uh, but they couldn't 
form a co-op the way they wanted to in Arizona. So they used Colorado statute and then um, became authorized in Arizona uh, to do their work there. But it's an awfully good example of how co-ops can really empower people. And then they expanded and created an umbrella federated co-op with multi-state individual co-ops as members of the federated co-op, all incorporated here in Colorado, but doing business in other states. That's just incredible. And we all know that this has been happening for decades. Companies will form typically you know, C-Corps, corporations under Delaware law, do business anywhere in the United States under the sun. Um, dare I say that Colorado could become the Delaware of cooperative law, given the flexibility of its statutes, um, which is the tee up to the conversation that I really want to have about Alka. We're having this moment uh, coming out of, in the intro, I described the Great Recession giving rise to a host of conversations around uh, business structures, ownership, design, equity, um, wealth and income inequality and access to business opportunity. And Colorado has what I believe to be the most flexible, um, authentic cooperative statute in the country, formed at a time, really drafted at a time that no one could really envision a a use for it uh, in 2006, seven, eight, um, ultimately passed, I believe, in Colorado in 2010. Jim, I don't think you gave yourself enough credit here for the state of uh, ULCA and where it's been adopted and and what it stands for. So maybe I'll give that um, responsibility to Linda. Can you describe um, who we have in the room and why this is such a novel and important development in cooperative law? Well, Jim doesn't like to brag about himself, so I'll I'll brag for him. Um, um, I I think... um, um, the the chore and the and the that he took on he and and tom gooey took on to create this new uniform limited cooperative association act uh i think it took five years and hours and hours and hours of conferences meetings telephone calls um, not just between him and tom but between him and the uniform law commissioners uh, uh annual meetings at least uh uh, it was it was a huge huge undertaking and and I watched through this process um, as as the act evolved um, starting as a combination of a limited liability company and a co-op co- corporation statute and then moving on into its own uh, business model and they looked at every single detail of uh, partnership law and corporate law and tax law um, to come up with this uh, superb set of statutes. So, Jim, uh, what is ULCA? What does it stand for? What problems did it purport to address? What opportunities did it create? Can you give us kind of a general summary of what was your collective purpose in in drafting ULCA? Well, ULCA stands for the Uniform Limited Cooperative Association Act. Um, And the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, or NACUSL, came to the idea that something needed to be done in the co-op world 
I'm not quite sure how that all emerged, really. Um, but they uh, decided they would do a uniform co-op act. Uh, but there were a lot of reasons that the traditional co-op acts didn't really work well. They, they wanted to find a way to bring uh, capital from outside sources into co-op, and that basically was not, except by way of loans, was not allowed under any of the statutes, and generally it was thought couldn't be allowed under co-op principles. Um, and issues like that uh, brought the commissioners to a place where they established a drafting committee for this new co-op act. None of them knew what it was going to look like. And Tom Gooey was engaged to be the uh, reporter or the person that writes the act. And um, I was privileged to be asked to be Tom's, to work with Tom on the statute. Um, and the, the idea was to try to build a lot more flexibility into the co-op structure uh, with one of the big ones being outside capital coming in uh, by people who are not traditional members of a cooperative. And uh, we started to look at all different aspects of, 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 of the co-op world and found that there were a number of, of things that the co-ops were really limited to. And a lot of it was access to capital. That wasn't the only thing, but that was, that was a big item. And so as we started to, to write, uh, Tom Gooey was a real expert in almost every kind of a business organization except co-ops, and I was the token co-op person <laughs> in the project. Uh, but we had, we were fortunate the drafting committee consisted of people who did understand co-ops. And that meant that every time we, we came up with an idea, it was going to be challenged by these people and to saying, are you know, are you preserving the co-op model? And I think it really helped build a strong statute. The, probably the biggest problem with ALCA is it's possible to create an organization under ALCA that is not a co-op. And what do you do with those? And is that okay in the co-op community? Um, but, uh, you know, that's really left for others to decide. It offers co-ops a way to uh, have a little bit different board of directors than a traditional co-op. You can have non-members on the board, but there are limitations in the act about how much you can do with that. You have to have a, a majority of the board, for example, has to have to be members. Uh, and throughout the co-op structure, that kind of flexibility has now been built in and can be used by a honest to goodness, really true co-op. Uh, but again, taking some slightly different approaches, but still trying to uh, follow the current versions of the Ristdale principles, which all co-ops have been built on. And I want to remind listeners, this was written starting in 2005, 2006. Uh, yes. Ultimately finalized in 2008, 2009. Uh, a variation adopted in Colorado in 2010. Um, my knowledge, to my knowledge, there are six states total that have adopted the Uniform Limited Cooperative Association Act, with two other states, Wisconsin and Minnesota, that have a, another variation of of that statute. Linda, what has the availability of a statute like ALCA meant for the cooperative movement coming out of 2008-2009's Great Recession? Well, uh, uh, the advantage of of ALCA is that outside investment. 
So um, instead of, especially for new startup co-ops, instead of relying solely on the members to provide the startup equity capital, um, they can go to outside investors who can become investor members of the co-op with limited voting rights and limited uh, ability to be on the board of directors. And this has expanded the financial opportunities for co-ops and allowed them to expand into many industries. Jim, you mentioned uh, that the drafters wrestled with the question of preserving cooperative principles. I can say in practice, the cooperative movement and the professionals community has really struggled with that question uh, with the statute we have. What advice do you have for um, startup cooperatives or for the general cooperative economy wrestling with how we balance the interests of capital and the interest of members to forge truly cooperative business structures committed to those principles given a statute that's so flexible? Well, I think the uh, the answer to that is, is really simply education. Um, you, you should never go out and organize any business entity unless you kind of know how it works. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that the Farmers Union did back in the 30s and the 40s of last century um, they uh, really educated people as to what cooperatives were all about, what the principles were for it. And I think that uh, in organizing uh, cooperatives under this new statute, new approach, uh, you still need to do that, or maybe not still, you should always do that with any cooperative organization. Uh, so that um, I think that's the big challenge, and I think that's the answer to what do you do with all this flexibility is make sure that members or potential members understand what's really behind the cooperative. And I, and I think uh, going uh, continuing on with that thought is that the organizational documents that are eventually created um, for that co-op have to include those those principles, the cooperative principles. If if that's the goal of the co-op, um, to remain uh, a co-op, and I think uh, you can do that with the organizational documents. Um, and if you don't want to be a co-op, that's fine. Uh, you can you can be an LCA that's not a co-op. Um, but I think, as Jim said, uh, educating the people that are forming the co-op of, of what the possibilities are and what the limitations are uh, is the important part. And with the few minutes we have uh, remaining, I'd like to get your your final thoughts on where we go from here, uh, given the almost 60 years of experience at the table, various sectors in the cooperative economy and beyond. Where do we go from here? What's your advice for the cooperative sector than the business community? What what regrets might you have that you could um, impart wisdom? What what wisdom might you want to impart on um, the players in the cooperative sector today? That gives me an opening for something I'd wanted to say the whole time we've been here. (laughs) Um, Cooperatives are an extraordinarily powerful organization for the people who are members. Uh, in coming together to accomplish things they simply can't do on their own. And 
it's, it's always seemed to me that in almost any business sector that there are people that can really develop their power in the marketplace by using a cooperative form. And I guess, you know, I, I think because of that, cooperatives can be utilized almost anywhere and in almost any setting. Uh, but until people understand what the cooperative is all about, education, it's very difficult to, to get people to come together and organize. Uh, and so I think that what I see in the future are people like both of you, uh, you know, helping to educate people in the broader community about what cooperatives are all about, and then working with people to uh, utilize the cooperative form to accomplish things and give pe empower people to do things that without the cooperative approach, it, it just, that opportunity isn't there. Linda, final thoughts? Well, I'm gonna uh, say ditto to what Jim just said, but, but um, I, and I think education, um, public education of what a cooperative is, what it means to be a member of cooperative, and, and, and as he mentioned, how powerful it is as a business model. And then continuing on with that, um, uh, uh, creating some form of co-op council that, that allows for all different kinds of co-ops to come together and learn from each other. Um, uh, possibly creating uh, separate councils, for example, um, for co-op industries, for ex example, a, a worker co-op uh, council so that community, uh, so that businesses that are worker-owned uh, can have their own form versus a purchasing co-op council versus an agricultural co-op council. Uh, or just ideas, um, I think the more, the more, um, uh, uh, people like you and I, uh, and uh, meaning uh, Jason and I, uh, can be out there talking to the public, talking to attorneys and CPAs, talking to uh, other people that advise businesses. Uh, we can expand the co-op consciousness. This has been uh, one of the true honors of my career. I want to thank Jim Dean and Linda Phillips for joining me in the studio today. You've been listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I've been your host, Jason Weiner. You can find information about upcoming events for the Study Circle at coloradocoops.info backslash events. A few upcoming events to keep in mind are the Community Wealth Building Legal Cafe, taking place at Green Spaces in Denver, at noon on Wednesday, March 28th. More information can be found at www.jrweiner.com backslash blog. The Co-op co Investment Club will be hosting a meeting the first Wednesday of the month at First Baptist Church in Denver from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Join the study circle on March 22nd from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. for a worker co-op happy hour if you're listening to this live, head right out the door on your way to Our Mutual Friend Brewing Company, where we'll get together to relax, unwind, connect, and share stories from the front lines of the cooperative movement. The Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center will be hosting a full-day workshop on creating a culture of ownership on Monday, May 14th at the Commons on Champa. 
with a keynote from Jennifer Briggs, the former HR director at New Belgium Brewing. There's a new initiative in Denver to create a Denver housing planning and development group focused on making changes to the zoning code that allow for cooperative living. If you're interested, email the folks at Queen City Cooperative to help provide feedback and input. A new housing cooperative in South Boulder is seeking five additional founding members and is hosting potlucks every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. at 4662 Ingram Court in Boulder. A Boulder Cooperative Food Buying Club has formed and is opening to individual and household members that are not yet part of the cooperative housing system. Instructions can be found by emailing the Co-op Study Circle at coopstudycircle.info. I'm your host, Jason Weiner, and thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you next month.